Have you ever wondered who is doing the research that will impact your future? The Research Podcast lets you meet those people and learn how the University of Kentucky is exploring and strengthening our understanding of the world through research and discovery. Here's Alicia Gregory, Director of Research Communications. Today we'll meet Robin Cooper, an Associate Professor of Biology in the UK College of Arts and Sciences. He talks about his genetic research with fruit flies and crayfish. And Cooper shares what his work has in common with Nobel Prize winner Thomas Hunt Morgan. So as you're whacking around these fruit flies that are flying around the lab, you can see our primary research animals as a fruit fly, Drosophila melanogaster, and another animal that we use in the lab are crayfish. And those are the primary research organisms we use. The fruit fly, as you might know, and many people have recognized the Department of Biology because we call this the Thomas Hunt Morgan School of Biological Sciences. We changed it from a school to a department a while, number of years back, but it's still the Thomas Hunt Morgan building that we're in right now. And this is because Thomas Hunt Morgan was an undergraduate at the University of Kentucky. And then he went on for graduate work and he uh, was awarded the Nobel Prize working with Drosophila as a model organism. A lot of people don't realize though, Thomas Hunt Morgan, some of his first work was actually on regeneration in crustaceans. So he was interested in the regeneration of limbs and crustaceans. So I kind of find this uh, a bit interesting that we're working with crustaceans as well as fruit flies and it's the same that Thomas Hunt Morgan used 100 years ago. But we're not in such an the old research questions, um, more modern research questions, but the power of genetics allows us to work with the Drosophila and do things really you can't do with any other organism in the sense of rapid development, manipulate genes very quickly, and test out many different aspects from behavior to how the neural circuits are formed. And you can relate whole animal behavior to the mechanisms behind that behavior. And I think that's really the power of a lot with the genetics with fruit flies. The crayfish is just a really nice preparation to understand some of the physiological principles. In particular, we're interested in synaptic transmission. And our past NSF funding has been looking at the differences in high output and low output communication between synapses such as when a nerve communicates to a muscle or to another nerve. There are differences in the synaptic structure and the proteins involved. And so we, we're interested in understanding that difference in high output and low output synapses, but also how they can be modulated differently. So as an example, you think about the human brain and you might have heard of people on medications, maybe antidepressants, for example, like uh, Prozac or fluoxetine, that can alter the mood of somebody. But mechanistically, how does that work? And does it work on all synapses the same way? We're a much more complex organism in our brain as well. Um, the fruit fly and crayfish, uh, a reductionist approach, but we can address some of the same principles in uh, these organisms and then see how they um, translate to humans, for example. But our work in the lab for the last 20 years is basically on basic science and understanding these fundamental principles. And then people can extract information from that. For example, the fruit fly, I think now that the counts up to about 60 human diseases that are now modeled in, in Drosophila. Everything from diabetes to neurological issues, learning and memory, for example. 
can they be treated? Can they be modified, for example? And those are some of the fundamental questions we're interested in. We also like to play around, and I think that's really important to play in the lab with undergraduates and graduate students because when they play on something a little bit different outside of the primary goals, they learn new things and they come up with new questions. For example, we had this one undergraduate a number of years back, uh, Nick Badre, and he was just phenomenal. He asked a simple question about why is it that CO2 knocks out Drosophila? And I said, well, I really don't know. So we went around and asked some of the geneticists in the department, as well as elsewhere, and nobody had an answer for the mechanism. So here's this undergraduate, you know, freshman. He was in my freshman class, 350 students in this room. He sat right up front. And he asked these questions every day in class. And I said, oh, my God, I'm never going to get through this lecture. You know, and, uh, but it was very good. And afterwards, he came and asked, could I work in the lab? And with his, you know, inquiring, just inquisitive nature, I said, of course. I think he published three papers from the lab as his undergraduate work and first author on, on some. That we followed up on some of that research, and it's led to new things. And actually, we put in an NSF proposal, a grant proposal, based on some of the findings that we've had from that project relating to CO2 and pH differences in intracellular as well as extracellular environments and how those influence synaptic transmission. So it's been really, you know, engaging. You have to keep an open mind and listen to people's questions and wonder, can I really answer that? Or, you know, just not to negate it, but to actually think about what these students are interested in. Some of the most exciting results we've had recently is, was with some new techniques that we started in the lab, and it's just gone every direction, actually. It's called optogenetics, and it's where you can take a gene from, say, a blue-green algae, and people have been able to put that into the Drosophila genome, and that gene expresses a protein that is sensitive to light. An example is that uh, the one that we're using, this channel rhodopsin, is sensitive to blue light, and there's some other proteins sensitive to different wavelengths, that you can target that particular gene to very defined cells. In our case, we're looking at neurons that express and produce serotonin, or dopamine, or acetylcholine. These are neurotransmitters, but also neuromodulators. And if we go back to our interest is in on modulating synaptic transmission, these give us a lot of power of, in the intact animal, you can shine blue light on the animal and then activate just serotonergic neurons. So instead of using pharmacological approaches, we can use more of an intrinsic approach, activate that neuron, and then see how that changes the animal's behavior. What's really quite interesting about this is that, what about during development? If we alter the serotonergic pathways, are the uh, level of serotonin that's being released, how does that affect the neural circuit, the formation? Now we're looking at it at the basic science level, but you think about maybe a mother that just gave birth and she's undergoing postpartum depression. And she needs to take an antidepressant like fluoxetine or Prozac. Some pediatricians say it doesn't really matter that much if you wanted to keep breastfeeding. And we know that Prozac will get into the breast milk. But what are the impacts on that uh, fetal development. And these are questions that people haven't really addressed yet fully. It's very complex in a human system because the brain's so complex. Behavioral changes might take years to actually manifest themselves. Learning deficits in school, for example, or maybe social behaviors. And so those are very fine, subtle effects that are hard to pick out 
in the human population, also in animal models, but at least we can address some of the very uh, pronounced effects. If a serotonergic neuron is stimulated and it's releasing a lot of serotonin, if the target cell doesn't branch as much because it's getting so much activity, that's a structural change that we can pick up. And so with optogenetics, we're able to really target these particular neurons like serotonin, dopamine, acetylcholine, look at changes in behavior of the animal, as well as developmental aspects. What's been fun about this for us as a research tool is that we've actually taken it out to schools. So we have a paper we're working on right now where we're putting that out for teachers, science teachers. We published a paper two years ago that went into the uh, national science teachers. So every high school science teacher in the U.S. gets this journal. It's called The Science Teacher. And actually it's been kind of interesting because that paper has resulted in more emails <laughs> and more questions than any primary research paper that we've um, actually put out. And so here I think that's had a very large impact and Cole and myself and uh, past graduate students, we've actually gone out to schools. We've gone to Dunbar here in town. We've gone to DuPont Manual in Louisville. We've gone to Lewis County High School, Girard County, Lancaster High, and Somerset High recently and actually worked with their high school classes for those teachers then to use this uh, technique. So it's, it's cheap. We've had students ask their own questions and then be able to follow up on primary research with this. And so I think this latest techniques available to the researchers with optogenetics and using Drosophila has, has really been the kind of the new changes that we've been uh, pursuing. And it's just, it's fun. Some of the work we've done too with another graduate student is looking at the effects of the heart in with optogenetics. What's really interesting about this is in flies, you can have this blue-green algae protein expressed in the heart of Drosophila. You can shine the blue light on it and the heart will beat faster. So we think about what's happening with humans, for example. Right now, if we put a pacemaker on a human heart or even a ventricular pacemaker, they sew those on to the heart. And in some cases, that can actually cause uh, injury on the heart tissue. Now, those are life you know, needed uh, implementations for the people. But think about what one could do with optogenetics. If one could express these proteins in the heart with a, a virus, for example, and there's examples of this being used in, in rodent models already, then all one has to do is just shine a light on and off, on and off, and you could actually pace the heart. We've used the Drosophila as a proof of concept. When we put that publication in for review, the editor actually wrote back and said, oh, this is a wonderful technique that you've been able to show. We're going to get this reviewed very quickly. And I think it only took about a week in the review process and it was out. So I think the community is really excited about this as well. I'm going on my 21st year here at the university. The past 20 years has been just wonderful. Um, wonderful graduate students, undergraduates to work with, and I think that's been the real joy of the last 20 years. When you get to see an undergraduate, not just in your classes that you're teaching, but in the lab primarily, when you see an undergraduate say, oh, I get it, and you know they're poking an electrode inside of a cell, and they finally measured an action potential that looks just like the textbook, and you hear them say, wow, that's just like my textbook figure. And I say, yeah, where do you think it comes from? <laughs> you know? So it's great when they uh, get to see these um, results that they're able to obtain themselves, and then it really empowers them, and they're encouraged to continue to go on with their research. 
in the 20 years I've been here, I think we have about 150 publications. 50 of those are actually with undergraduates as first author or co-author on our papers. So we've published papers, I think three or four now, with high school students' names on the paper. Our last paper was actually with a high school student as first author. And it, it's kind of interesting because she developed a new saline that's used to keep the Drosophila heart alive so we can do experimentation with it. Well, I was invited to a seminar to give a talk in Krakow, Poland with an international physiology conference. It's only a, once every four years. So this person emailed me and then I didn't respond back right away, so she called me. And it was from Poland. They said, we would like for you to come and present this research on this latest paper that you just put out. I said, I really can't make that particular time for the meeting. Uh, how about if I send my uh, high school student that's been working on this project? And she said, oh no, a high school student, well, we want to understand about this latest sailing that you developed. And I said, well, she's first author on the paper. She's <laughs> the one that developed it. And so it was really quite, an, um, you know, taken back. But she actually then went to Poland and she presented her research at this international meeting with people from all over the world. I heard back from the people that were there and said, I'm so glad you sent her. She was just a you know, wonderful person. And the presentation that she gave, an oral presentation, uh, went over really well. And so, you know, promoting the students, if it's their project, they take it and embrace it and, you know, they, they're engaged. So that's another example of keeping people, you know, engaged in their research and uh, spark their interest. Thank you for listening to the Research Podcast. To subscribe to our podcasts on SoundCloud or iTunes, search University of Kentucky Research Media and visit our site, reveal.uky.edu.